0: hello everybody welcome to this week's a disciples point of view so after being out for a week i am back and i'm feeling better thank you so much for your well wishes those who asked me to get better and whatnot i do feel much better so i'm going to just jump right back into the swing of things and what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about marriage and sexuality which are hot button topics within our current culture today there's a lot of shifting going on from traditional values into the idea of being more of a progressive model of marriage and sexuality today. So what I wanna just start off by saying is that I wanna just basically give you what the Bible says about it. And I'm gonna try to give as little commentary as possible and just let the word of God speak for itself. Let the Holy Spirit speak for himself in your heart as to what his will is for marriage and sexuality. So the very first thing I wanna say is Within our current culture, the trend is if you don't actively celebrate somebody's lifestyle choice, that is often seen as inciting hatred and very unchristian-like of the Christian to-do. So what I want to do say in response to that is whenever you speak the truth about what the Bible says about any given topic, such as, You know that somebody is going to go to hell without jesus christ well that is very offensive especially in our current culture it actually always has been um oftentimes you know when i was a non-christian i would counter as you don't know me who are you to say who i am etc 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 but the bible is very black and white about this if you don't have jesus christ you're going to hell and that's very offensive so whenever we say you know that marriage is between one man and one woman as we will go into here in just a moment that is seen as inciting hatred the thing of it is is that jesus said that we would be hated in matthew 10 22, and john 15 verse 18 jesus said they hated me they're going to hate you they meaning the world Uh, outside of the church, it's like a lot of people don't understand why Christians are the way they are, why they hold the views the way they do. Well, uh, let's go ahead and just jump right into why we hold the view is uh, that a marriage is between one man and one woman. And the model can be found in Genesis 2.24. Specifically, the whole uh, story of Genesis 1 uh, and 2 of the creation account gives us the idea that basically God created man, right? Named him Adam, which ironically enough in the Hebrew, Adam means man. Uh, and then God decided that it was not a good idea for man to be alone. And so he put it, uh, Adam to sleep, took a rib out of his side, and created a woman out of that rib. So rightfully, could it be said that woman came out of man kind of thing. And then God brought this woman to Adam and then Adam, Adam named her Eve. And we have this verse that is so often quoted at weddings in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus even affirmed as much in the New Testament. The word for wife is actually the Hebrew word of Issa and universally means wife or woman and is universally the word used in the Old Testament for woman or wife. It was synonymous. It was not meant to be anything else but that. So I understand that in the Old Testament, there is the idea of polygamy, and we're going to get to that here in a moment. Um, The model is, is that the man would leave his father and mother, And then obviously start his new family with his wife and the word cleave uh some versions use the word united is dabak and it means to cling cleave or to be close and the the whole idea is is this is singular in nature okay so it's one man leaving his father and mother for one wife and they shall be one flesh that was the model and idea for what marriage would be in the bible and to be quite honest actually does maintain to be the current model okay which sounds like a contradiction but i'm going to explain why it's not here in just a few moments uh actually right now so we have to address the elephant in the room about polygamy in the old testament it is god's original plan for marriage to simply be one man and one woman but however there are many instances within the old testament where this is not necessarily so king solomon um who was right after king david the ancient israelite uh nation probably was the most prolific example where he had 700 wives and concubines but he himself even violated the law of god in the book of deuteronomy in chapter 17 by god saying you're going to ask for a king later on down the road But a king is not to have too many wives, lest his heart be led astray. And what we see happening in the life of King Solomon, if you read through it, is that his heart indeed did get led astray, and he came under the judgment of God. Okay, it must always be emphasized. These unions were always between a man and a woman. As two people of the same sex having any kind of sexual relations, in the old covenant law, was considered to be an abomination before God. That can be found in Leviticus 18, verse 22. And likewise, sexual activity was not allowed outside of marriage as it is today. A lot of times we, although the Bible has a lot to say about our modern culture, it is not best understood in light of our modern culture, meaning that there are several passages where, you know, okay, well, what about people who just have random sex in you know, the 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 commonplace or whatnot. What if what if a guy and a girl meet in the marketplace and they want to go hook up? That did not happen in ancient Hebrew culture. And if it did, it was the exception more than it was the rule. So we're going to talk about some of the passages that talk about what happens if a person seduces a virgin, quote unquote, because keep in mind too A woman in ancient Hebrew society was considered more or less a second-class citizen, and they were heavily protected by the fathers and the brothers within the home, and they were not allowed to have interactions with males that were not their immediate family. The virginity of the woman was guarded very closely and was to be preserved until the marriage night that was the ancient hebrew culture and in exodus 22 verses 16 through 17 it says if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife so if a if a man ended up trying to seduce a woman and was successful he was forced to marry her so you know the old term in our current culture a shotgun wedding It's kind of basically the same idea within ancient Hebrew culture. In verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. And then we go over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22. It says, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. That's clearly people who are married. Uh, having sex outside of their marital uh, covenant. So basically the penalty for them was death. And verse 23, if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman shall, uh, because she did not cry out in the city and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. So this is people that were caught in the act of sex outside of marriage. In verse 25, but if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death, for just as a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he his, I'm sorry. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. In verse 28, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall. Give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all the days of his life. And in verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. So this pretty much covers the gambit of premarital sex in the Old Testament days. This was not something that was typically allowed to happen. It was something that was actually punished. It was something that was actually, if you ended up doing it, you were forced to marry that individual. And if for whatever reason the father says, No, I'm not going to allow my daughter to marry him, then he still had to pay the bride price, which was 50 shekels of silver. So, why though did God permit multiple marriages? We've covered the sex outside of marriage. But what about when God clearly? did not condemn uh, multiple marriages to occur if the biblical model is supposed to be one man and one woman. Well, there's this idea that many commentators and scholars call the perfect and permissive will of God. The perfect will of God sounds just like it is. It's like you follow God's law or God's will or God's word to a T and human beings never deviate from it. That's when we follow the perfect will of God. However, It is the permissive will of God in that, obviously, God works in and through the sinful inclinations and actions of various people throughout various times in history to accomplish his own purposes. Meaning that, say, even just two uh, Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ in Genesis 49.10, it was said that he would come from the tribe of Judah and in Micah 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. So how in the world is God going to navigate this through the the will and actions of various different people if we have people disobeying God all the time, right? God is working his will out through the inclinations and actions of individuals throughout the ages. And this is what people would call his permissive will. He allows these things to occur to accomplish his own purposes. He is basically utilizing the evil that does tend to happen with people rebelling against God to bring about his ultimate purpose. If that makes sense, hopefully it does, then I would say within the permissive will of God, he allowed polygamy to happen for two reasons. Number one, is I've already said, that women were considered second-class citizens in the ancient Hebrew culture. and If they weren't living in their father's or husband's home, they were often subject to slavery and prostitution. So in a lot of ways, even though God's model was for one man and one woman, he did allow it to occur because of sinful inclinations of men that God allowed to occur. would This would actually end up protecting these women and keeping them within a family home and come under protection and provision. Now, the second uh, reason that I would argue is that God allowed this to happen so that the earth could be populated faster, because if it was just simply one man and one woman, basically the woman would generally only be able to generate one child per year. This would have taken a really, really long time for the earth to become populated to any degree and would honestly, probably mirror more or less the millions of years kind of thing. And obviously God wanted this to be sped up just a little bit. So now we fast forward to the New Testament. And I believe that basically God is reinstating his plan for a one man and one woman model. Now, of course, (laughs) some will say, well, there's no one verse that says this and that and whatnot. But I'm going to give you my argument as to why I think there is plenty of scriptural evidence that the New Testament is returning uh, God's original plan for one man and one woman. And that's it. Not this multiple wives kind of thing that God had allowed to flourish underneath the old covenant. So the first one we find, and I should preface this by saying This is basically the qualifications for spiritual leadership within the Christian church. These are written by the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to underscore something that Jesus said that I believe solidifies this for the entirety of the church. So Paul is going into the qualifications for overseers. We would call this today pastors. Or bishops, or deacons, et cetera. So these are people who are leading individual congregations of the Church of Jesus Christ. So in Tech, I'm sorry, First Timothy three, starting in chapter two, it says a bishop. Basically, this is an overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, etc. So then we go down to verse 12, let deacons, again another leader in the church, be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their households well. So it was this idea that anybody who's going to lead the church has to be the husband of but one wife. And if we go over to Titus, Uh, chapter one and verse six, it says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, etc. So it's going into this whole thing that anybody who's going to lead the New Testament church in any capacity whatsoever has to be the husband of one wife, and consequently, again, and that that, this would be a podcast for another day, but has to be a man also, at any rate. How is that relevant? If it's just for leaders of the church, should the individual congregants be able to have multiple wives? I say no, and here's why. Whenever Jesus, in John chapter 13, he started washing the disciples' feet. And this seemed like, no, 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 you're the king. You're the Messiah. Why are you trying to wash my feet? Starting in verse 12, Jesus says, so when he, or well, it just says, uh, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said, do you know what I have done to you? So this idea is, it's like Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And now Jesus is sitting here asking them, do you know why I've done this? In verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am, if I am, if I then Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And you may sit here and wonder, how is that relevant to marriage? Jesus is saying basically the absolute head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Okay. There is no one greater apart from maybe God the Father. And realistically, again, another podcast for another day. But he is co-equal with God, the Father. But regardless, Jesus is the absolute head of the church. Jesus did something that a servant, a lowly servant, was considered should be the duty of. But Jesus himself actually did it. And he said he did it as an example to the disciples. Meaning that if the leaders are to do a particular thing, so then should the lesser congregants. So my point is, is that if the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be the husband of but one wife, I would argue, based on the servant leadership model that Jesus was talking about in John 13, that the congregants then are to follow in the same example, and that the individual congregants are to be the husband of but one wife. Hence why I believe, that the new covenant was God's return to the one-man, one-woman model, okay? So, Jesus also, we have to address this as well. Jesus also affirmed that marriage is simply between one man and one woman. In Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 6, the religious leaders are basically asking him about divorce, Basically, hey, didn't Moses permit divorce and all this and that? So again, Jesus is saying this in response to one thing, but I believe it also speaks to our topic today. In Mark 10, starting in verse 6, it says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So basically, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 right there. In verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So he goes on in verse 10, and I think this is relevant. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. In verse 11, so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What's the point? You may be asking. My point is, is that God, that Jesus here, God basically, did not give an example of any other kind of marriage. So he affirmed that marriage alone was between a man and a woman. Again, also returning to the idea of a singular man and a singular woman, and that's it not having polygamy anymore. Right, Returning to God's original model. And it was only between a male and a female. That begs the question, Jesus, this is something that I'm seeing a lot in the internet these days, is that Jesus never truly directly addressed two men or two women in a loving relationship. He never condemned that. Therefore, it's okay. That is the current argument that I am seeing in our current culture. So I do want to address that as well. I want to address this in the spirit of 1 Peter 3 verses 15 through 16, that says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Some translations say with gentleness and respect. I'm going to try to be as respectful as I possibly can while still simply holding to what the Bible does actually say. Now, it's true Jesus didn't necessarily say two men together, two women together is wrong. He never really said that. I'm going to tell you why I think that he didn't because we do have to really remember for the most part, marriage in the world, the world over has never really been allowed between two men or two women or anybody else of any other binary. But basically that's the combo that we're going to stick to in this discussion, two men or two women that was generally never really allowed by any authorities, even within the Roman empire. It was allowed to be practiced in the Roman empire but there was never truly recognized marriage. That's really not happened until the 21st century. It's a new kind of phenomenon, and it's a new thing that is confronting the church today. So I want to talk about why I think Jesus never really directly addressed this. Okay, So we do have to remember that the time that Jesus walked the earth, the Old Testament law was still in place. Jesus had not yet died for the sins of the world and then raised from the dead, thereby... Instituting the new covenant. So the old covenant was still in place. And you'll find Jesus telling people to do this and that and everything else in conjunction with the law of Moses, because that is what was in force during that time. And so, since the old covenant law was still in place under the writings of the Old Testament, we do have to say what the old testament law said about same sex relationships. And they were outlawed. It was an abomina- said to be an abomination before God. And that could be found in Leviticus 18, verse 22. Later on in that chapter, there's a whole litany of sexual practices that were practiced by the nations around ancient Israel. But God said that anybody who was found to have practiced such things would be put away from their people. Basically, that was social death being included in the nation and people of Israel was considered to be the lifeblood, which, you know, in our American culture, our Western culture, we may not quite understand that. But if you live in a part of the world where you have a tight knit social community, and then you're put out from that community, it is literally like social death. You feel like part of you has died. However, in Leviticus 20 verse 13, anybody actually caught in the act, of lying with a man as one would a woman, as the scripture indicates, they were put to death. There was a death penalty in place for people found in the act of committing same-sex relationships, as far as, you know, engaging in the sexual act thereof. Anybody who was found later on to have been committed such acts, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's come to light through evidence of another means, but they weren't necessarily caught in the act. They were simply put away from the people and congregation of Israel, which again, as I explained before, was like social death. And we also have to remember that homes back in those days were not near as private as they are today. So even if you have an apartment, apartments are built well enough that generally what happens in the apartment really isn't well known, right? Right. Now, we may have thin walls. We may be able to figure out what's going on based on the sounds that we hear in adjacent apartments. But here in our Western culture, we don't care, right? It's that whole thing of, you know, you you do what you want to do, et cetera, whatnot. But in the ancient Hebrew culture, they lived in homes that had little to no privacy. They lived in a culture that had little to no privacy. If they wanted to go and do something that was considered an abomination before the Lord, that also carried a death penalty literally you would have to go somewhere off in the hillside right and find some extremely remote location and do such a thing and then if you were still caught in the act as zealous as the ancient hebrew culture was to try to stone jesus for their beliefs of his violating god's law i believe that if anybody was truly caught in the act and knowing what the mosaic law required they would have expediently carried that out. And some people might say it's like, no, because the Roman empire was in charge at that point and they would have stopped them. Well, no, because in John 18 verse 31, whenever they, the religious leaders tried to bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor over what they called Palestine. Then he told them, you take him and go judge him by your own law. So, that was well recognized that you could still judge people by your own law you just couldn't carry out certain death sentences you could stone people to death that was acceptable to the romans they didn't care as long as it didn't cause basically a a riot or societal disruption they didn't care if that happened okay but you could not crucify somebody that was considered to be A bad thing to do to a roman citizen and as a matter of fact was outlawed by the roman authorities so if somebody wanted to have somebody else crucified that's why they ended up taking jesus to the roman authorities they wanted him crucified they wanted him to be publicly humiliated and killed in that manner not just simply stoned to death that wasn't good enough okay so if There was somebody found within the nation of Israel, even during the Roman Empire. It was fully acceptable to the Roman authorities for them to be judged by ancient Hebrew law and killed according to ancient Hebrew law. That was perfectly fine to the Roman authorities. Okay, And even though homosexuality was widely practiced within the Roman Empire, and that's well documented, it was not widely practiced in the ancient Israelite culture. The reason why that's relevant is because this was the power that was over the nation of Israel at the time that Jesus walked the earth. Okay. So, in my opinion, this is why Jesus never fully addressed it. I believe this was not a widespread practice at all within the ancient Hebrew culture. This was something that was a whisper occasionally, perhaps. This was something that, you know, if if you talk to folks in the gay community that were alive in the 50s through the 70s here in the United States of America, it was not very well accepted whatsoever for somebody to be gay, for somebody to have a same-sex relationship. That was not considered to be acceptable in our culture. Now it is. We even have a full month in the month of June that is Pride Month, that is widely celebrated. That was absolutely not so in the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the New Testament, and specifically with Jesus, right? And some will still say that, you know, well, he never fully addressed it. So I'm saying he's okay with it. Again, I've kind of explained why I think that he didn't uh, fully address it, but he also didn't fully address idolatry. So obviously, within the old covenant law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, the very first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus never fully addressed idolatry. Okay? At that time, I mean, I this is another podcast for another day, but there was a whole bunch going on within the nation of Israel throughout their history, whereby they constantly went after other gods and worshiped other gods in flagrant violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus, at that point, since they were under... A judgment of judgment of a judgment of a judgment for having done so i do not believe idolatry was very rampant within the ancient hebrew culture while he was walking the earth at that time so he therefore never fully addressed idolatry right Uh, he did say that basically whenever he was asked what are the greatest commandments he said love the lord your god with all your soul heart mind and spirit love your neighbor as yourself right again never really fully addressed idolatry however I don't believe that we can make the case since Jesus didn't fully address or directly address idolatry that idolatry under the new covenant now is okay. So meaning if I want to have a statue to the God of Osiris of ancient Egypt, then that's well and good. I could worship Osiris just right alongside with Jesus. That is not gonna work. That is not going to fly. And I believe the same could be said of same-sex relationships that Jesus never fully addressed, okay? And we also have to consider what the new covenant actually is. This is something that was prophesied under the Old Testament writings. And the reason why that's relevant is I want to read a passage to you from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, starting in verse 24. It says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of your countries, and shall bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And now I'm going to give you the New Testament translation of what I just read. In Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, it says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall have no dominion over you, you, for you are not under the law, but under grace." So it carries this idea that basically that under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was very much a temporary thing. Rightly would David say when he committed adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he said, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. However, we fast forward then to the New Testament, under the New Covenant, And we see that basically in Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul tells us, having believed you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is something that is permanent now, okay? And this was prophesied under the new covenant. And that's another podcast for another day about the significance of that and what was actually said within that passage of why the Jewish people are actually prophesied to be fully under the new covenant in the land of Israel, but that's another podcast for another day, and I do have podcasts about that. But the point here is, is that the law of God becomes within our hearts and becomes becomes instinctive. And we then can realize what is God's will, what is not God's will, because we are fully being led by God with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so all of that said, I believe that the scriptures do not allow for sexual relations between two men or two women, either outside of marriage or within a marriage. I believe that God only recognizes sexual activity within a marriage and then that marriage being between one man and one woman. I believe that's what the scriptures have played out. However, this podcast has been largely about a non-spiritual topic, if you will, I always want to end these podcasts with an opportunity for you to hear what God has said about eternal life and how you can receive eternal life, how you can then come under this new covenant that I have been talking about, how you can know for certain that you have eternal life right now. And how you do that is coming up in the segment in just a few seconds. At this point in the podcast I want to reach out to you and if you have never done so if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ I want to invite you to do that today all you need to do is believe believe that Jesus is who he said he was he was God in the flesh believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead confess him as Lord And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that he is who he said he was, and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and heart and everything through a process, if you will to embody what has already taken place in your heart by simply praying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life and I wanna follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's all you need to do and your life will change. Your life will change, not so much materially, not so much in terms of the world, but your life will change in your standing before God in that you may know that you can have eternal life. The Apostle John wrote that when he was penning First John. He said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but so that you can know. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. At gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.